Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're covering an exciting topic counterfeit wine. And we have the world's most uh, foremost expert, Maureen Downey, the CEO of Shea Consulting and the Shea Vault. Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. As one of the world's most renowned experts in wine authentication and wine fraud, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background and how you got into this area of expertise and how does one become a wine fraud expert? Um, well, the path to it today is a lot different than the path that I forged, I will say, because when I started in wine auctions in 2000, there was no path to being a wine authenticator. Some auction houses used the old-fashioned mentorship where people would kind of passively learn over a long period of time, but I didn't have that. So what I did is typical American story where I innovated and I went out and I wanted to learn about paper. So I met with somebody from the Met in New York and she taught me about how paper ages and how paper has changed through time. And I spoke with my cousins who happened to work with Mr. Chihuly at the Rhode Island School of Design. And they taught me all about glass and the history of glass and how glass has changed over time. And obviously, I have been studying wine for a long time. I actually started studying wine as a freshman at Boston University in 1990. So I kind of combined a whole bunch of different things. And then as I continued to find these counterfeit bottles, I would just seek out different areas of information about chemicals and, you know, different forensic ways that people look at other items like art. So there wasn't really a path that I had. What I was faced with when I started looking at wines and authenticating wines in 2000, it was the good old fashioned, one of these things looks different from the others. And then just going from there and trying to figure out why it looked different. Eventually, I learned that there were counterfeits. And over the course of the last 20 years, I've developed a method and a systematic approach. And I'm now training people in it. One of the kind of funny things is that there's a very famous counterfeiter named Hardy Rodenstock, who in early in my career, I was working at Morell and Company, and I didn't know who this person was. And he had faxed in some questions about some bottles that we were selling in an auction. And he wanted details about these bottles. He wanted to know the measurements of the label and the color of the glass. So he sent a fax and my boss gave it to me and I went out in the warehouse and I got all the answers and wrote them down and she faxed him back. And then the next day I came in and there was another fax from the guy and now he wanted pictures and he was asking really weird questions about the lower left corner, what's written and is it a period or a comma and, and all these things. And so I was out taking photographs of these bottles and Peter Morell of Morell and company walked up and he goes, you know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, there's a some German guy wants information about these bottles in the upcoming auction. And he goes, well, what's the guy's name? And I looked at the facts and I said, Hardy Rodenstock. And Peter Morell goes, oh, you know, they say he counterfeits wine. So I realized at that moment that he was kind of teaching me how to authenticate. There were magnums of 1945 Gruadla Rose, which is, I understand, was one of his favorite wines. 
So I kind of took all of those little pieces that he gave me and that was the beginning of my systematic approach. So I think I was taught by a counterfeiter. So was that your first encounter with a counterfeit wine or like what was the first experience where you're like, oh, these things are not the same? Uh, Well, when you work in wine auctions, it's very different than a lot of other aspects of the wine industry because what you have are these cases of wine that people have purchased and put away and you're actually taking all 12 bottles or six bottles out and lining them up at the same time. And that's when you notice the differences. I mean, the, the guys at Royal Wine Merchants, for example, what they used to do is out of a case, they would take out three or four bottles and swap them out because most collectors don't line up 12 bottles at a time and look at them. And so the collector would go in and he'd have a bottle and he'd try it and say, oh my God, that's the greatest wine I've ever had in my life. Six months later, pull another bottle. Well, that's kind of a bummer. And they'd chalk it up to bottle variation, which is a real thing. So when you work in wine auctions and you're actually putting all these bottles next to each other, it's kind of like the old Sesame Street game of one of these kids is doing their own thing. And, you know, we're playing memory with cards or it's just being able to notice a detail and recognize which one is a little bit different. But when you put 12 of them up together and three of them are different, they stand out. So uh, you also advised the FBI and the Department of Justice on a number of high-profile wine fraud cases, including the infamous Rudy Kernowan case. I was wondering if you could talk about your involvement with that and how you participated. Sure. Well, there were years of work actually went in prior to Rudy being arrested. And then Once he was arrested, he was in custody for almost a year and a half before they started the trial, predominantly because nobody really cared about Rudy. What they wanted was for Rudy to roll over on his co-conspirators, I think predominantly Ackermarill and Condit and John Capon, because, you know, Rudy was an illegal immigrant. They could just deport him. But the lead up to it was really about working with this kind of group of people that I still work with, including Don Cornwell and some other people in the industry tracking the counterfeit bottles and noting them and pointing them out to auction houses and to retailers to try to stop the sale of these wines. So there was a concerted effort and I worked with Bill Koch's investigators. I worked with the FBI and I worked with, again, this little group of people, I call us the international super friends (laughs) because we're kind of all over the world and we try to keep an eye out and, you know, we're still very active. We're looking at two sales right now an Ackermarill Condit sale or Acker, I think it's just called now, and a, a Bonham sale in Hong Kong for which we've already gotten about 40 lots pulled. Wow. That makes me wonder how big the scale of counterfeit wines or wine fraud in general are. When I did some research, I found anything from 200 million a year to 5 billion a year, which is a crazy number. It's definitely in the billions. Per year. Because the wine auction market is only about 500 million a year, right? So even at 200... The vast majority of counterfeit wines are not sold at auction. Auction is the most visible spot. When you have auctions, we actually have photographs of these bottles. You have descriptions. We have time to research them. The vast majority of counterfeit wines are sold privately. They are sold on the internet. They are sold via brokers and or on the low end, they're sold via retailers who don't use traditional channels of sourcing their wines. 
it is an absolute myth that the auction market is the source of most counterfeits. The auction market is only the most visible source of counterfeits. And quite honestly, at this point, most auction houses know that they're under a microscope and they do a better job of vetting wines or at least trying to vet wines than almost all retailers and brokers across the globe. Wow. So I think what I hear you saying is it's actually, if you're trying to buy these old, rare, collectible wines, the auction houses are probably the better venue versus a retailer or broker or something like that. 100% more so than a broker. There are some retailers that know what they're doing, but the vast majority of retail outlets in the world do not. And there's been such a boom in the last 15 years with the value of these high-end wines coming up and all these new people jumping into the retail and broker game that really have no business selling wines this expensive and this rare. They don't know how to vet them. They don't know what to look for. And quite honestly, they don't care. They just want the dollars. I'm curious on how, as the wine bug has spread across the world and it really hit Asia. I'm curious on how counterfeiting applies into those markets. You mentioned a bottom sale in Hong Kong just now. And we were hearing from some of our you know, other interviews around wine auctions that actually Hong Kong is one of the primary markets because of their friendly terms for not having taxes on things like that. And I'm curious, is the level of counterfeit understanding equal in different regions or different parts of the world? So the issue that we have in Asia when it comes to counterfeits is There's two things going on. Number one, I think a lot of the Western world likes to believe that the Asian collectors are somehow more naive. On the very high end, a lot of these Asian collectors, because counterfeits are part of their culture, they are more ready to assume something is counterfeit until it's proven real. Whereas in the West, and especially, you know, in the United States and in Europe, people assume something is real until it's proven counterfeit. So I think it's actually a myth that we believe in the West that, you know, counterfeits are an Asian problem. What is real is that when the markets first opened up, they were absolutely flooded with the fakes that had been found in the United States. Via auctions and via private sales, most of the counterfeit wine that had been identified as counterfeit at the time was wholesale dumped in Asia. A lot of it was sold directly to clients in China. And on mainland China, there's such huge taxes that have to be paid for bottles to be imported that most of the collectors actually use coyotes, you know, illegal import practices. So they have no recourse. But as those wines can potentially get out and be found at auction again, they're coming back around. The other thing is that because, and again, this is, I think, A lot of Westerners will look at some of these Asian, we call them ridiculous counterfeits, you know, or instead of Chateau Petrus, it says Pacours or Romney Candy or things like that. However, if you were to give me an Asian product that was written in Chinese or Japanese or any other, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the difference between this character and that character. So because of that, because a lot of these are written in a language that these people don't read, We look at them and think that they're funny, but they look close enough for those people and that's okay. And there are whole 
mean, if you go to some of these huge wine fairs, there are whole sections of the wine fair where it's just counterfeit wines. They look close enough if you don't speak the language. So there's a lot of different types and layers of this counterfeiting that goes on. That's what I call IP infringement. Then you have a massive amount of wine fraud at the low end. And this is something that is probably, you know, hey, we want to say it's a bigger problem in Asia. It might be a larger scale, but if you just look at the news over the last six months, 12 months, counterfeit rosé in the south of France is a big deal. And there's really no region that it doesn't hit. The vast majority of very good counterfeits right now are coming out of Europe. Other than Rudy, they have been for, you know, the last 30 years. Interesting. I'm curious on how the level of wine fraud has changed over time. Obviously, you're dealing with some really old bottles. I'm assuming that fraud detection techniques of older bottles is harder because you don't maybe have as many examples of them, of what a real one should look like. So I'm curious on how that's changed over time and how you're able to deduce these problems. So let me flip that on its head because the reality is that the old and rare wines are actually easier to authenticate. So Rudy got out of jail last week, right? We still don't know if he got deported out of the U.S. or not. The reality is that he was the last guy that we know of who made old and rare wine. You have to do things like bake the paper in the oven to make it look oxidized. And you have to put applications on it. And you have to make sure that you've got period correct glass. And you have to make sure that you've got period correct paper and period correct glue because people like myself and my team now hip to the fact that there have been chemical changes in the production of all of these components over the last 150 years. And we know how to put a particular piece of the bottle into the correct time frame of its production. So if you tell me that this is a 1921 bottle, I can shine a UV light on it and tell you, no, it's not. And then that's, it's just science. In the wake of Rudy, the wine industry, which is different than the spirits industry in this effect, the wine industry went into panic mode and everybody adopted what we call cosmetic solutions. They're cosmetic only solutions. Most of the industry that was using plate press production switched to digital printing so that they could add invisible ink and micro writing and things like that. That does serve a feel good for the producers. It does absolutely nothing to protect the brand. Unfortunately, all that that does is it empowers modern counterfeiters. And when I say modern, I mean post Rudy to mimic exactly all of the counterfeit cosmetic production that the producers are doing. A really high quality printer, digital printer might cost about $500,000. That sounds like a lot of money unless you're making $30,000 bottles. That's, That's not a big investment. We have been seeing for four or five years and continue to see better and better reproductions of the invisible ink and micro writing and all of that. So the modern trend is actually to make current production or recent production wines because those are a lot harder to spot. And, you know, most people don't even know what to look for in all of these cosmetic little things on the bottle and how many people are actually going to take a bottle back to the producer. And even if you do take the bottle back to the producer, are you going to get in 
I mean, if you buy a $300 bottle of wine, are you going to spend $3,000 taking it back to the chateau to ask him if it's real? It's, you know, we've got some real problems to address here, but the counterfeiters are, sadly, they have figured out how to stay smart. You know, crooks are smart. If they could just apply themselves to the real world, they could probably fix problems, but. They must be making more money this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the mafia or the mob, right? They're the smart people who succeed. Yeah, no, I, I've worked for the mafia. I've managed a restaurant in New York. They're not very smart. <laughs> There's been a lot of collectors around the Rudy time and maybe since, I don't know, you probably have better knowledge of that. But like Bill Koch, have gone after all these counterfeiters in a serious way. Have they made a dent on the amount of counterfeiting or has it not really helped at all? I would really love to think that what Bill has done and what a couple of my clients have done to try to rid the market and put pressure on some of these vendors has done anything. But at the end of the day, it just hasn't. And the problem is that consumers are still chasing cheap bottles and there are way too many unscrupulous vendors who are willing to provide those bottles. I always say, if you spend $3,000 on a $5,000 bottle, you have not saved $2,000. You've wasted three. And unfortunately, it happens all the time. And as I said, because of the boom in prices, so many people have jumped into the fine wine game that just have no business being there. I mean, I don't care if you're a certified sommelier or you have your WSET level two. That doesn't mean that you know even if you're a master of wine or a master sommelier, that doesn't mean that you know what a 1945 Mouton is supposed to look like. So we've got a problem across the board. It's the vendors don't know what they're doing and the consumers aren't putting enough pressure to make sure that they're being protected. Yeah, I would say, wouldn't part of the problem be that people also don't know what these taste like as well? Oh, nobody knows what this stuff tastes like. Seriously, anybody that hasn't worked for the domain or the chateau for generations or decades that tells you that they can definitively taste something that's 60 years old. I just don't believe there are very few people in the world that have palates that grew up with the kind of wine that we're talking about that can actually taste this stuff for authenticity. If people could taste for authenticity, wine fraud would not be a problem. People cannot taste for authenticity. The other problem is when it comes to the big critics a lot of the old wine that the Berghound was tasting was made by Rudy. A lot of the old wine that Robert Parker was tasting was made by Hardy Rodenstock. So are the baseline notes for some of these old and rare 100-point perfect wines actually based on counterfeits? We don't know. So there's no floor. And if there's no floor, then there's nowhere to start the expectation, which is a very sad thing. If anybody claims they can taste for authenticity, they're full of shit. So I'm curious on what are some of the main ways that people are counterfeiting now, the stuff that you're troubleshooting now. You just said that the old and rare wines, the 1940s and before those older wines are actually easier because they have different bottles and different paper and there's a lot of work that goes into them. What are the main methods of counterfeiting right now? Most of it is current production, digitally printed. So if you take, for example, the Sasakaya ring that was broken up in Europe just a few weeks ago, they sourced proprietary or they copied proprietary type glass 
They got professionally printed labels with the anti-fraud, the invisible ink. They got professional capsules made. So what we're up against right now are rings of counterfeiters who are making excellent, excellent copies. It's almost like going from the time period before there were copy machines, good color copy machines, and somebody had to by hand reproduce a piece of art. And now you can color copy it and turn it into a beautiful poster or whatever. It's kind of like that. And that's where we are in this fight right now, because there are so many purveyors of glass and capsules and corks and things out there that if you have all of the correct products, you know, exemplars, if you have a real example and you can take real examples to these people who make glass or capsules or corks or labels. Is it really up to them to say, well, do you have the authorization to make this Sasakaya label? They don't care. They're just going to make a capsule. They're going to make a label. So what we're up against, I think, more and more is going to be tracing through the supply chain. We've got to track the supply chain. So given that issue and that advance in technology, what wines today are getting counterfeited the most? Is it a specific region or is it just anything above a certain price? It's not even about price, really. Again, let's look at the last couple of months or the last year. We had Spanish wine. We had top-end Spanish wine counterfeited. We have rosé in the south of France that's actually from Spain. We have this Italian Sassicaia. We have the things that we have seen for the last 20 years, like the high-end, the Romani Conti, Henri Jaillet, 1945 Mouton, Old Latour. So we're still seeing those, but I think that most of the new counterfeits are probably current release stuff that we probably haven't seen yet. The best counterfeit I've ever seen is the one I didn't know was counterfeit, right? So I think that the biggest issue that we have moving forward is recognizing that We have to stay in line with what these guys are doing and stay up to date with current technologies and current availabilities. And it's tough. It's tough. What they're producing is similar to what's coming out of the, off the production line of of authentic producers. So this problem sounds much bigger than even like what the movies and stuff have talked about. And I think that's a major issue that people aren't talking about this enough, but as a consumer, as a collector, what are the best ways for me to make sure that I get real wine? Like, what should I be doing if I wanted to have a takeaway of how to make sure that what I have and what I'm buying or what I'm investing my money in is going to be genuine? What do you recommend for consumers? This is a really tough one because I have had clients who have done all the right things. They've asked the right questions. They've demanded answers. They have paid firms who claim to specialize in sourcing only the best above market value for total crap counterfeits. It's really frustrating. I mean, I've got a big case right now where this firm claims to do nothing but source the best and it's tons of counterfeits. At this point, I think that the best thing to do is make sure that the firm that you're dealing with has not had problems in the past. Get to know the people. You know, historically collected wine had a relationship with the merchant and there was almost like a mentorship and you would start kind of with the low end or the same guy or the same merchant would deal with the whole family and you would get to know them when you were younger and you would start with lesser wine and then 
you know, when you got to college, you might start drinking a little bit better wine. And when you finally got your first job, maybe you had your first growth. And right now people have a lot of money and they jump right in at the first growths and the Grand Cru's. So they really have no basis for understanding who might be sourcing because they're looking for the best deal. Everything is available online. So I would suggest that people have a relationship with their vendor, get to know somebody and listen to them and trust them. And when they tell you, I know that you want to have a 1985 Henri Jaillet Richebourg, but it's really not going to be worth $30,000 because it's going to be fake. Listen to that. Don't go on Wine Searcher and find one for 12 grand and then be shocked. So ask questions, demand answers. If somebody can't tell you where the wine is from, walk away. Be ready to walk away. Do not take the old school, oh, we've been sourcing from this collector for 30 years. I don't give a shit. Where did he get the wine? How did he store it? We live in a digital age. If somebody can't produce a document that tells you exactly where they got the wine, at least a credit card receipt, you can black everything else out, but it'll show you that you got it in, from K&L on your Amex in 2005. So I think that there's a lot more that consumers can do. But at the end of the day, this is a hobby and people don't want it to be a job. So the best thing that you can really do is get to know a consultant. And if you're going to buy these high-end wines, have somebody vet them first, not after. If you've already bought the wine, it's too late. So one of the things I think about, I'm trying to draw a parallel here, is when Premox was hitting Burgundy, a group of consumer advocates basically came out and made like pages and were try- and basically sharing their information about which producers and which vintages and which bottlings had known examples of Premox as a kind of like a warning sign to other collectors. It seems like there's not as much talk about counterfeit wines in those groups about like sharing like hey i experienced this i got it from this place and sort of that contact tracing to figure out where it's happened and like that seems like a huge opportunity to help bring the consumers in because i feel like someone has a bad bottle like oh it's just a bad bottle versus maybe i should get this vetted maybe i should send this to someone have you thought about that in terms of how to build up that kind of consumer network to help vet these things Well, you know, the guy that started the oxidation page is Don Cornwell, and he's the guy that I work with on counterfeits. So same world. And what we've done is we try to, you know, Don's in LA, I'm in San Francisco. We've got Jeff Troy and and a couple of other people in New York. We have David Wainwright and a couple of other people in Hong Kong. I've got employees and colleagues in Europe, in London, in France, in Burgundy. Switzerland, Italy, France, and Belgium are hot spots for counterfeits, always have been. What we try to do is communicate about, hey, this is what we saw. Every time we're seeing new counterfeits or new counterfeiters, I know that sounds weird, but when we go into collection, we see a new kind of impression or a new thumbprint of a new counterfeiter. We try to alert this little group of super friends so that we can be on it. Dawn tries to keep the public informed via Wine Berserkers. And my team and I started winefraud.com, which is a website resource for both collectors and the industry. And we're actually launching a new version of it next week, which is going to be great because you can do side-by-side photos. And I can't really come out and say online, this is fake and this is why. 
or this is real and this is why, because either one of those would give a roadmap to counterfeiters and would not make the producers very happy. I'm very much cognizant that I need to protect the producers in this. So what we try to do is give that resource to people so that they can at least do their own homework if they're not going to reach out and ask for help. Otherwise, I think the problem in doing that, Robert, is that people aren't embarrassed about having a pre-moxed wine. People are embarrassed about buying a counterfeit. So there's a lot of ego in a lot of these wine groups and a lot of these, and people don't want to admit that they've been had. And even when they've been had, they brush it off like it's okay. I mean, you saw sour grapes. Like some people are okay with it. <laughs> they still had fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of like losing at a casino, I guess. They got their entertainment <laughs> anyway. So you were talking about the producers and protecting them. I know some of the wineries are doing some of their own tactics to try to prevent counterfeiting. Some of that could be like put little bubble tags, the proof tags. Yeah, those are cosmetic. Okay, what are the different ways that wineries are trying to prevent it and do they work? Proof tags are a great idea, but there are two problems. They are cosmetic. They can be digitally printed. But the other problem is you have to be in proximity to the bottle. So for the last 20 years, I've been trying to figure out a solution to this, and we finally have it. And the solution has to be something whereby you don't have to be in proximity to the bottle because most of these big bottles are being purchased via email, via online retail offers, and sometimes via auction. So we've come up with a system whereby bottles can be inputted into a system we call it the Shea Vault at the time of production or following authentication in the secondary market. And then the information about that bottle is saved in a blockchain secured environment where the ledger of authenticity and provenance can be accessed anytime the bottle is for sale online from anywhere in the world. So this is going to track supply chains and it's going to protect individual bottles, not only from, so, you know, one of the questions you asked before was how do bottles get counterfeited? They either get refilled, they get reproduced, or they are made as unicorns, which are things that never existed. You know, something like a proof tag, you can empty that bottle with a Coravan, refill it, and you have an absolutely cosmetically perfect counterfeit refill. Nobody would ever know it. And it's the same problem when the anti-fraud is on the label. You can refill that. Another huge fraud that was recently uncovered in Europe was this gang of folks that went around and they collected empty high-end bottles from hotels, casinos, and restaurants, refilled them, and then sold them online on online auctions. So there needs to be something that is that protects the top of the bottle so that once it's opened, it's destroyed. So we have an NFC chip that goes underneath the capsule and can be read, which is new. That's a brand new technology that we've developed with our partner, Enoplastic. And then in the secondary market, we put a short, clear PVC overlay with the same chip over the top so that if it's pierced by a Coravan, the chip will no longer read. And it's about resale. So that bottle cannot be resold. It cannot be represented again for sale. Anything that claims to be a solution where you have to be in proximity to the bottle is a losing venture for the consumer. If you're close enough to scan it, it's too late. 
Got it. So the Vault authentication method is basically a blockchain ledger that is essentially giving a unique ID that is transferable between different parties, but then also has essentially an RF tag underneath the capsule and on the somewhere on the label. That actual RF tag is the real key in terms of making sure that you're protecting the closure so that the bottle can't be consumed and reopened. But is there a failure rate on those RF tags? The failure rate right now is really low. We have a second generation coming out in January that we expect to have a very low failure rate on. And it's got a bigger antenna, but everything is wound up in the top. So you can read it from further away. I mean, some of the problems with these things, with these chips, they aren't very powerful and you have to be like within two inches of them. And that is not great for a bottling line. So we've had to develop things where we can put a piece in a bottling line to photograph the actual bottle, scan the actual chip and the QR code. The chip is something that only is affected by a vendor who would go to resell it. The ledger is also available using the QR code, which obviously has the URL to the online ledger. Some people believe right now that they can use some sort of URL for anti-fraud. That's for marketing. But for us, it is the consumer's way to hit their ledger. The only way to affect the actual blockchain ledger is through the chip. Got it. Okay, so selling has to be in proximity to do the transfer. We have a whole kit that vendors can get. If they've got bottles that have already been inputted into the, then all they have to do is scan the chip. They have to have the authorization from the owner to sell the bottle, obviously. So the owner controls the ledger and the owner makes a ledger available for sale. And then the vendor can put that URL on their website and people can actually click on the actual bottle with current conditions. They update the conditions for sale. So it'll say the date of the sale, the date of the condition report, the person that did the condition report, and all of the bottle's transaction history. It's interesting. I would always worry if you were having something on underneath the capsule about if you have seepage or mold or something that would mess with that contact point and not even tampering, just like the nature of cellaring the wine, making sure that it doesn't degrade over time or that environmental issues like seepage would, would impact it. Yeah. For right now, we don't believe that those things are going to be issues. We've tested them, but of course, we're testing in not real time. So one of the things that we recognize is that over time, we may have to go in and put a new chip. Like if somebody has a whole collection that they've vaulted, we may go in and re-chip some of their wines or, you know, look, technology today is fodder for school children in the future, right? I grew up in Silicon Valley. My dad was one of the original designers of the integrated circuit. I learned most of my four-letter words as a little kid because the Japanese would produce computer chips before advanced micro devices could even get them off the line. So I recognize that whatever technology we think is hip today is going to be totally antiquated in the near future. So with the Shavalt, what we have to do is get something out there that is a solution today with total cognizance that we may have to revisit some of those bottles and update the technology and constantly be ahead of the game to try to provide this solution to consumers. Wine collectors should be able to go back to the joy of collecting and drinking wine and not having to 
have it be a job and a headache. That's why I started Shea Consulting. This is supposed to be a hobby for people. So I'm curious on who's using this method right now and how much more expensive is it to add the Shea Vault to your bottling line? Is there a price point where it doesn't make sense for a producer to do it? Is it, or are we only talking about like those ultra premium, like 500? It's pennies. Okay. No, it's pennies. Currently, we have priced out that the addition to the bottling line would be about $8,500. And then it's literally pennies per bottle, depending on how much you want out of the Shea Vault. Do you want total vision over the supply chain? Somebody who has a low-end bottle who just wants to make sure that their vendors are getting the real thing could do it for pennies a bottle. Higher-end wines that require ledgers and transfer of ownership. I mean, you don't need a transfer of ownership on a $10 bottle. I think that's overkill. And I think the producers would think that that's overkill. All they need to be able to do is have provability that that is an authentic bottle and not a counterfeit knockoff. So there are different levels to the services that we can provide, and those would come at different costs, but it starts at pennies. So as a collector, obviously the Shea Vault is new, so there's not that many wines with it on yet. How important is it to have your collection authenticated? I kind of think of, you know, other collectibles like sports cards or comic books, and they have their authentication people and systems. And, and then it's like worth so much more that this is rated, you know, 9.9 or, or whatever. Exactly. Is that the same with wine or how do you see those differences? That's what we are, are thinking long term. Last year, we had a couple million dollars inputted for a consignment for a sale that was sold by Zaki's in New York. We have inputted several other collections in Europe, and we have authenticators all over the world who are putting chips on authentic bottles as they check them. It's the only way that we can be sure, that we can state with assurance that we have inspected this bottle. A lot of other crooks out there have their piece of paper that says, this is a letter of authenticity about this totally fake bottle. And even if the bottle is authentic, even if the intent is pure there, Who's to say that that piece of paper actually belongs to that bottle? Who's to say that that piece of paper hasn't been altered in and of itself? The rest of the world seems to be up on authenticity. I mean, you've got huge markets for sneakers, for athletic shoes, and those are authenticated. And there's something very weird about wine where people get sensitive about it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these big collectors are often captains of industry. And they don't want anybody else knowing that they made a mistake. How am I supposed to trust you with my money if you can't be trusted with your own money, right? So I think there does become a sensitive issue. But I think that one of the things that needs to start happening, I think one of the things that consumers need to require is that some of these vendors start getting independent third-party authenticators involved. The same way that the real real does and eBay Authenticate does, and a number of other industries have adopted. To have the same person is benefiting from the sale of a product be the person to state that it is authentic is asinine. I didn't used to feel that strongly about it, but just looking at the auctions upcoming in the next week, I'm horrified. The consumers really need to say, I want to buy from you, but I would like an independent third party 
authenticator to look at these items first. And, you know, right now consumers can do that. They can hire somebody to go in and look at the bottles. But I think that, that a lot of the vendors, big retailers who deal with reselling secondary market wines and auction houses should, as an industry, adopt third-party authentication. Since we have you, Marina, I think we'd be remiss to not ask for a couple of stories of some examples of either some of the best frauds that you've cracked that were really difficult or some of the worst ones or just anything that you think would be a good anecdote, because I'm sure you have tons of great stories. Oh, my God. So one of the things that I forgot to answer before, the resale, there's a couple interesting stats out there that I think is important to remember. A lot of people ask me about where I come up with 20% of wine in the world being counterfeit. If you look at all the different avenues of counterfeit wine from low end to high end, 20% is not hard to reach. 20% is also supported by Interpol. 20% is actually the global average of counterfeits for all high end items. And that includes electronics, sneakers, headphones, Hermes scarves. That's actually an Interpol average that also makes sense with wine. In terms of how much value an authenticated product, how much value is added when something is authentic and known to be authentic or a very good provenance, which is what we're trying to do with the Shea Vault. Over the last several years, there have been a number of chateau and domain direct consignments at auction. And if you look at either chateau or domain direct consignments and or consignments of known excellent provenance like Glamis Castle, at Sotheby's or a number of these named consignments like that. Prices tend to be 20 to 30% higher on those items versus like items of not the same provenance. So what we are hoping is that with the adoption of the Shea Vault in secondary markets and in primary markets, when you go to Wine Searcher and you look for a 1990 Latour and three bottles are in the Shea Vault and you can click on them and see their ledger, we think that those should be worth about 20 to 30% more than like items with no provenance information. Because on that ledger, you can actually see the history of provenance. So, funny stories. I don't even know where to start. Going undercover for the FBI, getting assaulted at La Palais. <laughs> you were assaulted at La Palais? Oh my God, totally. Yeah, right after Rudy was arrested. It was in New York, and I went to the restroom, and I, the guy must have been, he must have seen me go to the restroom. So I got up, I went to the restroom. I came out of the restroom, and I turned the corner to go back into the gala room, and he totally shoulder-checked me. Like, he went down and hit me hard. And if I had been wearing, if my heels had been any higher, I'd have been on my butt. And since then, I take bodyguards to large tastings like that. And the last one that I went to here in San Francisco, the bodyguard that I had was a New York City retired police detective turned PI who was working on a case with me. And I asked him if he would come and do this. And he had to physically keep John Capon away from me. You know, he was screaming at me and it was crazy. I've seen some crazy things. People get very, very excited when it comes to mixing their passion and parting with their money. So I've definitely seen people in weird times. I've also had the good joy of 
working with clients who don't really have anybody else that they get to talk to about these passions. And, you know, even their wives don't understand it. And it's really interesting because these guys, as I said, they're captains of industry. Some of these people are the richest people in the world. And everybody else knows them as this tough boardroom guy or, or dad or my husband who's always with that goddamn wine collection. And I get to see this guy like a little kid at Christmas who's excited about talking about Moussini and Jeffrey Chambertin. And it's really quite interesting. That's the fun part. And that's, you know, I wish we could get away from the fine wine in the world being so riddled with counterfeits and get back to more moments being excited about walking a particular Burgundy vineyard for the first time. But what sucks is that these counterfeits are stealing all of those moments away from people. So, you know, got to do both. And what was that one bottle that almost made it past you, but you ended up catching it? Like, what was that that bottle that was the hardest one to crack, but you still got it? Wow. Authentication is not a science. It's an art. And a lot of people think that it's black and white, and it's really not. There is a lot of gray. Because over time, a lot of producers have done funny things. And, you know, it is not impossible that a producer scratched out a vintage and wrote in pen another vintage. It is not impossible that they used a capsule from the wrong vineyard or the wrong vintage or whatever. So weird things do happen. So you have to be, I like to err on the side of gray and just say, you know, I'm not sure. You definitely can't resell it, but I'd drink it type thing. I think if anything, in instances where I'm in a quandary, and there are a lot of them because there are a lot of times where it's not black and white. The best thing to do is to offer to pop the bottle with the owner and see how it tastes. <laughs> that would be my go-to play if I was you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure we better open it. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times that's the best advice you can give. If people always ask about, you know, wine for investment, is wine a good investment? The best investment in wine is knowing that you're investing in a future amazing event that you're going to get to experience with friends and family and you're going to remember how you bought that bottle. And so in the event that people bought these big bottles and they're not obviously fake, you know, hopefully they're not full of germs and weird stuff. I will tell you one thing, Rudy's bottles are falling apart. A lot of them are falling apart. But, you know, if they're not falling apart and they don't have mold in them and look like you might get gangrene of the mouth or something if you drink them, you know, give it a try. The scary thing about the counterfeits is we don't know what's inside. Well, Maureen, every time we have a guest, we ask for them to answer two questions. And it's about asking, what do you think is a lasting trend and a fizzling fad in the wine counterfeit space or the authentication space? So lasting trend is that wine counterfeits are here to stay. So Pliny the Elder wrote about his friends drinking, how silly his friends were because they were waxing and waning poetic about some Falernia. And he was so knowledgeable that he knew that it was fake. So counterfeits have been around for a long time. The first law against counterfeiting was the Cote de Rhone from Louis the Beloved in the 1600s. and it's not going away anytime soon. 
So counterfeiting is here to stay. Fads, I think, I am hoping that cosmetic solutions, that wineries using cosmetic solutions are a fad that we're going to see go away. I think that people are realizing that that those are feel goods, but they don't actually do anything. So we need to get serious about brand protection and consumer protection. And these cosmetic solutions aren't the answer. Those are two great insights. I look forward to getting my uh, Shea Vault app, authenticate my bottles and store them. Uh, keep it safe from Peter. Right? <laughs> Don't let any sticky hands in there. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to educate us on the current state of counterfeiting. It's obviously a much bigger problem than I had realized. And now I feel kind of scared. <laughs> but uh, you know, I thank you for <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. It's part. It's reality. It hurts. It's kind of the nature of 2020. But I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate you educating us in this area. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, if you have any other questions, people can reach out to us at Shea Consulting and on winefraud.com. We've got resources to help protect people. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. 